Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, this is James Stansel, your host of the African American Studies channel on the New Books Network. Today, you're going to have a great pleasure of listening to Bill V. Mullen. He's a Purdue University professor of American studies. His book, W.E.B. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line. This book is published by Pluto Press. Professor Mullen and I had a great conversation talking about W.E.B. Du Bois his work in the 20th century, and, you know, really letting people know things that he did other than debate with Booker T. Washington. Professor Mullen also did a great job in his book and during this podcast showing you how the work of Du Bois really relates to things that are taking place in the world today. He started out his book making a connection between Du Bois and the Black Lives Matter movement. So I think you're really going to enjoy this interview. Sit back, relax, and enjoy. Again, this is James Stansel. The African-American Studies Channel. I'm your host, James Stansel, and today I have the great pleasure of being with Purdue University's own, a professor of American studies, Bill V. Mullen, and his book we're going to be talking about today is W.E.B. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line. Du Bois is one of my favorite African-American scholars, sociologists, and thinkers, so it's a great honor for me to be here today with a Du Bois scholar like yourself. Mr. Mullen, how are you today? I'm really good, James, and I really appreciate being with you today. Oh, it's my my pleasure. Thank you so much. And I enjoyed talking with you a little before we got officially started there. And um, sometimes I wish that the the audience could hear some of the things that (laughs) we discussed before we um, uh, go live. But again, I'm here. The book is by Pluto Press, W.E.B. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line with Bill V. Mullen. And Bill, if you don't mind, uh, can you maybe tell us a little bit about your background before we get into the book? I know a lot of my listeners are interested in knowing the people, the men behind these books. Yeah, well, I I was born in San Diego, California, out on the West Coast in the last year of the 1950s. Grew up in Southern California. Father was a police officer. Mother was a telemarketer. My sister's an occupational therapist who lives out lives out in the Bay Area still. And, uh, you know, a big turning point for me in my life was when I went off to college at Occidental College. Okay. 1977 and became a literature student and was really transformed by reading one book. It was uh, Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. Oh, yes. (laughs) And it kind of blew my mind. I had never read such a great book before. I had never read such a powerful book by an African-American writer before. And it really kind of put me on a path to to know more about where that book had come from and mm-hmm. what Ellison was trying to say and right. how it related to the rest of American literature, you know, because not only does he tell the great story about a quest for identity, you know, African-American identity, but the book is full of references to people like Herman Melville and T.S. Eliot and James Joyce and 
Oh, yeah. Not to mention the blues and jazz and the Great Migration. I mean, it was just an encyclopedia of of things and ideas. And, and I already loved literature, and that book made me love it even more. And then I actually graduated from Occidental and myself moved to New York City, oh, kind of like wow. the kind of like the protagonist of that book. Right. And you know, I remember I remember thinking there's that that line from Living for the City by Stevie Wonder where a character gets to the city and he says, skyscrapers and everything. <laughs> that's, that's, that's how I felt, but I felt like I was almost coming into New York with the memory of that, of that novel in my head, you know? And, um, and I actually spent some time trying to write a novel when I was oh. in New York, kind of inspired by Invisible Man, to be honest with you, although I'm not even sure at the time I knew how much. Um, and after I spent a few years doing that, knocking around, I decided to go back to graduate school. I didn't want to leave New York, so I stayed in the city, and I went to the City University of New York Graduate Center there, which at the time was right on 42nd Street, across from the public library. Mm -hmm. I had an incredible education there. I had some really dedicated faculty members who guided me through my work, and by the time I came out, I felt like I was ready to do what I needed to do as a scholar. And um, the, my, my, my writing career kind of started when I moved to my first job at Youngstown, Ohio, mm -hmm. up in Northeast Ohio, which by the time I got there was, uh, a steel town that had kind of fallen on hard times. And, um, I got very interested in what ha what had happened to the community there. The fact that, uh, the, the, the mills had provided for everybody. And when they, when they went away, people were living on very hard times, mm. particularly the black community, because, um, Black workers had been the last hired and first to lose their jobs when mm -hmm. the steel mills closed down, and they were still living in real uh, folks who were descendants of the mill workers there. Black folks were living in very tough conditions, mm -hmm. and, that, and that that experience, combined with my reading of, of of books like Invisible Man, really made me want to write about the struggles to understand social justice, racial equality, and economic opportunity as it exists in the United States. And, and most of my books are about that. You know, mm -hmm. I, my first book's about the South side of Chicago during the depression and mm -hmm. how the black community responded. And, um, and my, you know, I, I naturally gravitated to Du Bois because he had so much to say about all these yes, things. Right? Absolutely. More than any African American writer to this day. Uh, and it was, it, it was very clear if you go all the way back to, the turn of the century and his, you know, his dissertation is on the slave trade, right? Mm -hmm. uh, wanted to introduce into the history of America the, cent the central role of, of the slave in the African-American experience, but also to talk about how slavery had been so fundamental to building capitalism, profits mm -hmm. that had flowed up to, to rich people in Europe and in America. And and that story in itself too, Du Bois's early work was always an inspiration to me as I was trying to see the whole Amer century, really the 20th century, which is really where I I live my life, but I also do a lot of my research. Sure. sure. So so Du Bois was kind of a a, a gateway uh, into a set of issues that had been with me for a long time, going back to when I was an undergraduate, but also such a powerful explainer and interpreter of all of it so i just mm -hmm. that kind of explains why i ended up writing the the book for for pluto press about him uh, that that makes sense to me and the book that we're speaking of today is w.e.b du bois revolutionary across the color line and i'm here with bill v mullen 
He is an American Studies professor at Purdue University, Big Ten School. Correct. Now Big I'm an Ten ACC. All the way. I'm an ACC <laughs> man, but I won't hold that. Uh, <laughs> right. I won't we'll call. <laughs> yeah, I, I won't hold that uh, against you. But this is a, a great work, and you know, we talked before a little before we came on air about the fact that it's accessible. You know, it's mm. something that people who are not, you know, really into like super deep scholarship should be afraid of. This is something mm-hmm. that's accessible to the, the average person. You know, do you right. want to talk about that a, a little? Yeah, I was trying to, to do something that I think Du Bois would have appreciated, which was to reach a, a broad audience with right. his ideas, you know. I mean, obviously, the man had a Ph.D. from Harvard. He was one of the best educated people in the history of the United States. He wrote for academic journals. He was a professional sociologist. He he more than than, than held his own. He was a star, really, in, in the academic world. Mm-hmm. Um, but one part of his life was always committed to popularizing his ideas. Right. And for example, when he, you know, he was working at Fisk when he decided to kind of leave the university and go to New York and start the NAACP because he felt like he needed a, a, a kind of a popular organization to help him both promote his ideas about race and racial equality, but mm-hmm. also to fight against things like lynchings. And mm-hmm. he, he became the editor of the crisis newspaper uh, in 1910 and used that paper as a, as a mouthpiece to reach all kinds of people, especially in Harlem, you know, which is where he was living and where the NAACP was headquartered. And I feel like at that moment, you know, of discovering the the, uh, the what's the right word, the vehicle for him in mm-hmm. the crisis to express his ideas, stayed with him the rest of his life. I mean, he he was a popular. He wrote for popular magazines. He is his. Uh, he reached all kinds of audiences with his ideas. Right. Uh, you know, he, in his public life, he actually ran for the Senate in New York one time. <laughs> it, it, it tells us that he was a he was a man of the people, even though in his personal taste and his demeanor, he could be, you know, he could be a bit of a snob. He could be a bit of an elitist. You know, we see that in some of his early writing where yes. he can be hard on people that he didn't agree with. But I feel like one a main trajectory of his life, particularly towards the period of the 1940s and the 1950s. Um, I mean, just to give one more example, you know, after World War II, he gets very involved in the public campaign against the spread of atomic weapons because right. he's so upset about the bombing of Nagasaki, Nagasaki and Hiroshima. So, I mean, he was willing to go out and stand on the street corner and hand out flyers to try to convince people that, you know, peace was the best way. So when I was thinking about the book, I was excited about trying to, uh, you know, transmit his life and tell his life story to a wide group of people, mm-hmm. which I think, which I think is what his ideas were meant to be for. They were meant to be read by by many, because ultimately, you know, his view was that it was ordinary people that were going to be able to that were going to change society if it was going to be changed. He, he believed in people more than governments, uh, even more than political parties. Uh, and in fact, in 1956. You know, after he had voted most of his life, he said, I'm not voting this year in the presidential election, which kind of reminds us 2016, almost half the folks didn't vote for a variety of reasons. Right. Mm-hmm. But his argument was, you know, neither the neither the Republicans or the Democrats are really representing my people. He was frustrated that neither party had moved, for example, to try to enact Brown versus Board of Education, which had been passed two years earlier. 
he felt like both of the mainstream political parties were too beholden to corporate interests. Hmm. I mean, where have we heard that before, right? A lot, right now. <laughs> uh, he said, you know, he wanted he wanted national health care. I mean, way before it was current to talk about it, you know, Bernie Sanders and other people. Um, he in 1956 he said neither one of these parties is concerned about making basic health care available to to the people that I care about, which is ordinary African American people, ordinary white people, the people who he knew needed help. Right. And um, I try to I try to convey that aspect of his life in in my book. And I think I think you did, and I, I think you did a great job with it. You know, so I applaud you for that. Thank you. Know, you. And the length of this book, I mean, it's, we're talking about a book less than 200 pages. So, you know, the average person, if you don't like reading or spending a lot of time, you can read this book and get a lot of nuggets about Du Bois from it. And the book that we're speaking about is W.E.B. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line. And it's uh, published by Pluto Press and the author Bill V. Mullen. He's a, an American studies professor at Purdue University. And we're so glad that we have him with us today on the New Books Network the African-American Studies Channel. And, of course, I'm your host, James Stansel. And, again, this is a book I think can be read by, you know, the average person, you know, definitely college students, yeah. you, know, you know, even some advanced, you know, uh, high school students, junior or senior year. It's something that's, you know, accessible. And so, yeah. and that's something kind of I would ask you, too, you know, Bill, if you were speaking to, you know, an audience of younger people, you know, what what should they know, you know, in your view or what, you know, would be, would be some things they sh- they could pick up from reading your book about Du Bois that would be important. To them. Well, what, what you know, I really wanted to recover Du Bois as a man of our time. And one of the things I start the book, I start the book with a story about the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, after Trayvon Martin was killed in 2012, a group of young black activists in Chicago started an organization to investigate police shootings of African-Americans in the city of Chicago. And they called their group, We Charge Genocide. Now, We Charge Genocide, it happens, was the name of a petition that Du Bois wrote the first draft of mm. in the late 1940s that, was gonna, that he wanted to send, he and other people with the Civil Rights Congress, which was one of the groups he worked with, they were inspired by the, by the fact that the United Nations had uh, passed a resolution condemning genocide after the Holocaust against the Jews, which right. was a very important uh, moment in Du Bois's life. He had tremendous sympathy for Jews who lost their lives. But he and his cohort, including a man named William Patterson, who was an attorney, said, mm-hmm. we believe that in America, black people have been the victims of a kind of long, slow genocide, going back to slavery, mm. the loss of lives. Uh, the fact that black men had died in battles and wars and not been properly uh, respected for their service to the country. Right. Uh, the fact that life expectancy in the United States in the 1940s was was shorter for black people than it was mm-hmm. for whites, which it is to this day. Still is. Um, and most importantly, one of the things that they documented in this petition to the U.N. was police killings of African-Americans. They, they literally went across the country and wrote little little vignettes, little descriptions of African-Americans who had been killed by the police. Well, that tells you how with it he is as somebody who was trying to understand issues that we're grappling with today. He really saw all the aspects of, of life for African-Americans as relevant, and he was willing to put his name to protest, and he was willing to 
use whatever form was available to him, mm -hmm. in this case, the United Nations. Uh, he was both brave and uh, determined in his convictions that he was a man of the people, that his task was to help lead. Um, he realized he had been privileged with a tremendous education mm -hmm. and tremendous skills, both as a writer and as a speaker and as an organizer. Uh, he never and he never wasted those skills. And I think that's a key message of my book. I'm trying to, in a way, give people an example of how it can still be done, uh, that he his, that his his he's a he's a role model for he should be a role model for us now. I think there's two other things that I really want young people and people who are just learning about Du Bois to know. Sure. One was that he was a very worldly man. Mm -hmm. uh, Definitely. We think of him as somebody who, born in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, lived almost all of his adult life within the, the, the boundaries of the United States, New York in particular. However, uh, he was a, a global figure. Um, he, in 1926, he went to the Soviet Union just a few years after the Russian Revolution. Right. In 1936, he traveled to China and Japan for the first time. Mm -hmm and then went back to the Soviet Union for the second time. In the late 1940s, he went to the Soviet Union again. He was in the Caribbean on several occasions. Uh, he went in the 1950s, as we all know, he started to travel to Africa, right. where he ended up uh, living in exile and dying, in fact, in Ghana, Ghana. in 1963. Right. This is a really important part of his life that I try to, to, try to explore, because while he was one of the great fighters for freedom within the within the United States. Um, he support he he did he made he traveled to these places because he wanted to support, for example, the Chinese freedom struggle. I mean, China was you know beginning to fight its own uh, war against occupation and imperialism against the Japanese, and he he went to to China because he wanted to support the Chinese as they were going through their anti-colonial struggle. Right. He wrote a lot about India. He, he wrote, he, he, Gandhi was one of his heroes. I mean, we all know that Martin Luther King learned a lot about nonviolence from Gandhi and the yes. civil rights movement, but he was a great inspiration to Du Bois as well. And he wrote many, many essays on the greatness of Gandhi and the need for, for black Americans to understand the importance of India's fight against British colonialism. Okay. He said it's really important for we as a people who face racism here to understand that our Indian brothers and sisters are facing racism over there just from a different source. It was the British in that case, right? Um, and then, the, the, you know, his, his trips to the Soviet Union were absolutely life-changing. I mean, he, he came back from the, you know, the Russian Revolution had happened in 1917. He went to Russia because he wanted to see for himself what it was all about. And he came back and he said, you know, if what I have seen with my own eyes is Bolshevism, which was the name for the the, the, the leaders and the party that had built right. the revolution, he said that I am a Bolshevik. And from that point to the end of his life, he made a strong commitment to support Russia in its revolution. He became far more interested in ideas about socialism. And I'll come back to that in a second. Sure. And all of this, in a way, was a compliment to, you know, what was really his longest activism as a global figure, which is, of course, Pan-Africanism. Right. We, you know, many people know him as one of the founders of the Pan-African movement, and he attended the first 
Pan-African meeting in London in 1900. But I kind of make the argument that you can't, you know, you can't really separate the Du Bois who, who fought his whole life for the freedom of Africa against colonization from the Du Bois who supported the Chinese revolution, who supported India's independence movement, who supported the Russian revolution. These were, in his, in his mind, these pieces all fit together. Mm. And people of color around the world across, tried to cross what he called the color line. You know, mm-hmm. my, my book is called Revolutionary Across the Color Line. Across the Color Line. Yeah. And, you know, he, he first used that phrase. A lot of people think he first used it to describe the race problem in America. He actually first used it at the first Pan-African Congress to talk mm-hmm. about the, the divide between the non-white world Mm-hmm. Asia, Africa, Caribbean, and the white world of Europe and North America. And he was really mm-hmm. just trying to give us a kind of a metaphor for what the colonial world looked like at the turn of the century, mm-hmm. sort of white on top and dark underneath, right? So so this, this, this is all of a whole. And when I call him a revolutionary across the color line, I also mean that he crossed the color line. He went to China. He went to Russia. He was willing I to see, go right. wherever he thought he needed to be to support freedom and justice. Uh, and that's a that's an underexplored or underemphasized part of his life. And it, frankly, it has to do. And this kind of segues to to the topic I brought up a minute ago. Right. Kind of. It kind of. It owes to to his political sympathies uh, when he reached middle age. You know, I mentioned he went to Russia in 1926. Mm-hmm. He was 58 years old, so he was for him in midlife because he lived to be 95. You know, <laughs> most of us don't live that long, but he lived until 1963. And from 1926 to the end of his life, especially, he really committed himself to a deep sympathy with socialism and he started to read more of the work of Karl Marx particularly in the early 1930s started to teach classes on Marxism at Atlanta University trying to understand he felt that Marx because Marx himself had said that slavery was part of the foundation of capitalism Mm -hmm. he wanted to know more about how he could use other ideas in Marx to understand the world and, of course, Marx had also pointed out that colonialism was one of the ways in which the European countries had gotten wealthy. Mm-hmm. That was something he opposed, just like Marx opposed slavery in, a, in the United States. And mm-hmm. Marx wrote a famous letter. He and a group of uh, working people in, in London wrote a famous letter to Abraham Lincoln and said, you must free the slaves. So he said, you know, he said, White workers cannot go free while black workers are in chains. Mm. And that idea, I think, took deep hold in Du Bois's mind, uh, particularly in the 1930s as the Depression was, was setting in. And he saw massive unemployment um, across the color line, both black and white. Mm. Absolutely. But particularly, but particularly black. Black, yes. black unemployment rate was, was probably well over 50% during the Depression. And it's, and it's in that period that he writes his, maybe what some people think is his greatest book called Black Reconstruction in 1935. Okay. And what he's trying to do is, is understand, uh, is to retell the history of slavery in the Civil War. And to retell it, he 
uses some of his understanding of, of Karl Marx's ideas to think that slaves who were trying to fight for their freedom were themselves like workers trying mm. to free themselves from exploitation, which was what Marx said workers should do. Mm. And the way he put this in the book, which is very interesting, he wanted to show us how many black people liberated themselves. Because the, the story had been up until 1935 that Abraham Lincoln had freed the slaves, right. that the Congress had freed the slaves, or that a bunch of benevolent white people up north had, had freed the slaves. But Du Bois pointed out that more than 200,000 black slaves had fled the plantations during the Civil War. And they had some, many had gone up north to fight for the Union Army against mm -hmm. the South. Others had just gone into freedom, whether it was in Mexico or Canada. But the way he characterized this in Black Reconstruction, he called these slaves fleeing the plantation. He referred to, the, he referred to this as a general strike. And, of course, strike is what we think of when we think of people uh, refusing to work, right? Sure, exactly. Right? But you can see how he was thinking about fleeing slavery as withholding their labor so that they could weaken the plantation system. In other words, mm -hmm. they, were, they, they were weakening the capacity of, the, of slaveholders to make money. And in doing so, he understand that they were going to help bring down the system. And that book is is so magnificent because you know among other things it also it also challenged all the history that had been written about slavery that basically said black people didn't have the capacity to free themselves mm -hmm. that they needed help mm -hmm. so that was that was part of the logic of slavery that paternalism was the idea yes. that African Americans were not capable of self care you know that that therefore slavery was a system that would sort of oversee them mm -hmm. he really really had to destroy that idea and the way he destroyed it was by looking at the at the role uh, that black workers played in freeing themselves now to go back to my point about how this kind of relates to his development as a socialist I mean Du Bois said that the end of slavery and the emancipation of the slave was a great moment in history no doubt but what followed it was a period which was where the title comes from, Reconstruction, which mm -hmm. was the federal government's commitment to try to rebuild the South, to bring civil rights to freed slaves, to allow them to vote, allow them to hold office, um, to allow them to own land, to, all, to do all the normal things, right, that so-called white people had been, been allowed to do. But that program collapsed uh, in 1877, and, you know, the story... Folks ever watched the film Birth of a Nation, that terrible D.W. Griffith film from 1915? The first one. <laughs> yeah, the first one. Thank you. Um, in which he, he shows you, you know, Griffith, Griffith shows you the effects and that when the federal government withdrew, uh, essentially it created a massive white backlash in the South. Uh, the Klan rose up. Lynchings proliferated, Right. And Du Bois thought that was a, a, a tragedy. He, it was tragic because he had come to understand that the only way working people were going to win their fair share against the system, whether it was slavery or capitalism, was to fight together. And he said after the end of Reconstruction, uh, that opportunity uh, passed. Mm -hmm. Whites began, he said, 
he says in the South, he says that's when the the the, plant, the plantocracy, the landowners, the rich began to really ingest the idea and use racism to keep to keep newly freed black people and poor whites apart. Keep them separated. And, yes. Yeah, Frederick Douglass said they divided both to conquer each, and that's how Du Bois saw that moment in American history. Um, but the second thing he understood to be important was that the end of Reconstruction also helped open the door for a new period in American history when America became an empire, uh, began to expand uh, in a very greedy way its borders and boundaries. So by the late by 1898, you know that's the year that America conquers. Uh, uh, Cuba, right? Um, Puerto Rico, uh, Hawaii uh, begins to um, take or annex, as we would say, these these, so, these territories that had once belonged to Spain and, and other European countries, and and becomes, in his in his opinion, uh, a, a, a dangerous world power, and that is the that trajectory of American history is the one that he felt socialism also helped to answer. Uh, he felt that the, the desire for money, the desire for land, the, the willingness of America to conquer foreign peoples, to take their land, to take their territory, things he had seen, things he had fought against in the Pan-African movement, right? Sure, absolutely. Which had been started in response to that Europe dividing up Africa. Mm -hmm. He said, well, America's in the same game now. And it makes sense if you look at his whole life that he came to understand this as the way capitalism worked, that it needed cheap labor and it needed markets for its goods and it was willing to go anywhere in the world to find them. So eventually, eventually he, he, uh, he after, after 1935, um, through the 1940s especially, he really commits himself to an analysis of capitalism that includes what we would call an anti-imperialist dimension mm -hmm. where he was arguing that the only way people are going to get free at home is if we stop punishing people abroad. Abroad. And, that, and, and this, this explains why India, China, and Russia were so important to him, not mm -hmm. to mention Pan-Africanism. He really saw, you might say, the freedom struggle at home connected to the freedom struggle globally. Absolutely. And wow, that, that was a very good explanation and Thank definitely you. the type of thing that people can expect to see, you know, in this text. And, you know, we'll talk about this a little bit more at the end, but this is not your only Du Bois book. So people who are interested, uh, we'll talk, you know, towards the end of our discussion about some other places they can go for, for some additional scholarship. Sure. And I'm talking to Bill V. Mullen. He's a professor of American studies at Purdue University. And the book is W.E.B. Du Bois revolutionary across the color line. We're having a great conversation here. New Books Network fans and friends, I hope you're enjoying it. This is the African American Studies channel. I'm your host, James Stansel. And you know, we're just, just kind of talking a little bit about Du Bois and his important, importance to American history, 20th century history. And, and Bill, you probably know this too, but you know, I've taught K-12 for a long time. Mm -hmm. And you know, when I ask young people, those who are familiar with Du Bois, the first thing they'll tell me is, oh, that's the guy that was against uh, Booker T. Washington. They had the debate. They had the debate. <laughs> right. right. 
And that's, you know, really one of the main things that they know about or, or that is, is taught in American history class. Mm. So a book like yours is definitely, you know, helps show the other side and gives people some additional context. And, and, and yes, helps make those connections between Du Bois and socialism. It's not something that people should be afraid of. I mean, it was, you know, a political idea or thought that he that he had that he thought right. would be helpful for his people. Well, you know, to, to pick up on the, the, the Booker T. Washington right. aspect, I mean, In Souls of Black Folk, his wonderful book that made him famous in 1903, he's very critical of Booker T. Washington, who many people know started Tuskegee Institute and was advocating vocational training and told black folks they should cast down their buckets where they are and learn a trade in order to essentially assimilate and survive in a free market society like America. Du Bois is very critical of that plan in Souls of Black Folk, and mainly because he felt like, and he was correct, that Washington was sacrificing civil rights to, mm. that, to that idea, that he wasn't really going to challenge white supremacy. He wasn't going to challenge Jim Crow. And du Bois was part of a group called the Niagara Movement, which is a group right. of more militant black men who thought that Washington was uh, being too complacent and not demanding more rights. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he develops this idea of the so-called talented tenth. And he says, instead of casting down our buckets at the bottom, we should give the top, we should give 10% of our people the best training and access to mm-hmm. the best resources and the prosperity and the success will trickle down. Well, you know, he, that's where he was in, in, in the 19, 1903, right? Mm-hmm. But I'd say two things about that for people who think of that debate. One, Du Bois himself discarded his own idea of the talented tenth, and he understood it was an elitist idea. Uh, he understood that the majority of black folks were not going to get to that top 10 percent, no matter how much time he lived on the earth. He needed something else. And socialism is, was one of the responses because socialism argues, you know, from each according to his ability to each according to his need. It's a theory of not building a society not based on profit, but on need. Mm-hmm housing and food and shelter and clothing is going to be equally available to all. So that's kind of the opposite of thinking about the talent of the 10th. And the second thing is he later, you know, when, when Washington died, Du Bois said, you know what? I was probably too hard on it because he said, I was trying, we were both up against the same monster. It was this kind of racist society that was keeping our people down. He had his theory. I had mine, but he said, I do understand that we were both boxed in by the system trying mm. to find a way out. And he, and, and I think that's important to know because definitely that moment is sometimes only understood as a battle between these two great men when, in fact, Du Bois reconsidered. But also it tells us that we shouldn't just pin our whole understanding of black history on, on one debate. You know, there were that's a great point. many, many other people and many other debates were had. Um, but I... I'll say one more thing about that. Um, it's very typical for, for students in America, and it's a good thing that they know about Washington and Du Bois, and they mm-hmm. might know about his important idea of double consciousness, you know, which oh, is yes. also from the souls of black folk, you know, this incredibly powerful description of, of, of being what he calls divided in yourself, mm-hmm. you know, both an American and a Negro, and you feel like you're at war with yourself in this country. And this was what he wrote in 1903. But he was he was simply trying to give us a psychological description of what segregation was like to live, you mm-hmm. know, to live on a color line, to kind of feel like you were, as he put it, you were always being judged by another world, the white world. Mm. You know? So that's so important. But again, 
he wrote about 20 books more. He traveled the world. His thinking evolved. He's one of the things I, I kind of like to think of him as a, as a fine musician, you know, who was always <laughs> fine tuning and changing, uh, you know, you know, particularly in the jazz tradition, there's this idea that you have to always refresh your thinking. Ooh, right. And, yeah. um, he was very much like that. And in fact, I like that. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, if you look at, I, you can look at essays from the 1940s where he'll go back, you know, he'll go back and tell you, well, I got that really wrong. Like I voted, he voted for Woodrow Wilson in 1912. He thought Wilson was going to be good for black people. Later, when he wrote in 1956, when he said, I'm not going to vote anymore, he said, you know, I've realized through my own experience that voting has its limitations. Mm. That was a pretty big break for him because he he wanted to believe in democracy. He wanted black people to participate in democracy. Right. Right. But um, but over time, he reconsidered. And that's that that decision that the two parties were not serving his interest was also coincided with his thinking that maybe this maybe a system besides the one we have is the answer. And that's where, mm. again, socialism kind of was mm-hmm. was out there for him as a as an alternative way of thinking. So he's a very um, you know, the exciting thing about reading him and following his life uh, is that you can see a man who was willing to change his mind, mm-hmm. willing to correct his thought, willing to question everything, you know, mm-hmm. question, question everything, which is what, you know, radical means to 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 kind of get to the root of things. And he was very radical in his approach to thinking about race and class and capitalism and even once in a while, gender. He didn't say he didn't write enough about about women and women's oppression as he should have. He did write one excellent essay called "The Damnation of Women," which I would recommend for your for okay. your audience. Um, Damnation of Women. Okay. Damnation of Women, which is published in uh, a book called Dark Water, which was right okay, right I'm after me with Dark Water. But it's a very powerful essay, which is one of the first uh, attempts. Well, certainly by him. Well, it wasn't the first because there had been. Ida B. Wells, and there had been a, a number of other black female intellectuals who had gotten there. But it's his attempt to kind of think about the position of black women in our society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's an essay I try to teach in my classes because it's oftentimes overlooked as well. Yeah, I, I, I would agree. You know, that's not, it wasn't my immediate thought. When you said that, I was like, divorce and women? You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But he was also, you know, he was also in his second marriage to Shirley Graham Du Bois, who was herself an artist and an intellectual and a dedicated progressive person uh towards the end of his life uh, he was open to the influence and the, and the leadership of people like shirley graham and other uh, women in his circle and i write about this a little bit in my book uh, people like claudia jones and and others and uh that's another aspect of his life that doesn't get talked about we sometimes make him out to be such a great man we didn't think he needed any help but he had lot he had lots of help uh as that's as a key point people. yeah absolutely very few of us can make it without uh, significant others or, exactly. or our supporters along the way. Exactly. And again, I'm, I'm here with Bill V. Mullen. He's a an American Studies professor at Purdue University. This is the New Books Network, the African American Studies channel. And I'm your host, James Stansel. And his book is W.E.B. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line. It's published by Pluto Press, and I highly recommend it, particularly for those of you who you know, you want to know about Du Bois, but, you know, you don't want to read a four or five hundred page biography or a reader on a lot of his different works. You can read Dr. Mullen's book and you can get a pretty good idea. And 
he, he has explained it early through listening how you can relate it to Black Lives Matter movement and some of the different things that are going on out there in the world today. So I definitely highly recommend this book. And, you know, I'm definitely very thankful to you, uh, Dr. Mullen, for spending time with us today on New Books Network. But I know you also have some classes and <laughs> other things that you have to go right. and, and do as well. We could sit and talk about and I would love to sit and talk with you about Du Bois all day. But I did want to give you an opportunity before we left, to, you know, maybe tell the audience about uh, some of your current or future projects or some other things that you have worked on that you think would be particularly interested, interesting to them if they're interested in Du Bois or the type of work or research that you do. Yeah, one of um, I'm currently teaching a class on the great James Baldwin, uh, oh, okay. and he's a writer that's kind of come back into vogue these days yes. as of Ta-Nehisi Coates' great, great book, Between the World and Me, in which, which he kind of, you know, tells his story about what what the Black Lives Matter movement means to him and what mm-hmm. racism means in America. But partly it's also a tribute to James Baldwin's great book, The Fire Next Time, which was published oh, yes. in 1963. and Highly recommend that book for your audience if they haven't read it themselves. Very powerful book about James Baldwin thinking of writing about Malcolm X and the Nation mm-hmm. of Islam and where do we go from here in 1963 when he understood and his title told it that America might be at a crossroads in its race mm-hmm. relationships. And I'm uh, in my class and in my writing, I've been exploring uh, an element of his writing which really interests me. He lived in Paris for quite a while. Um, and the longer he lived in Paris and longer he lived, he tried to understand, like Du Bois did, parts of the world he wasn't so familiar with. Uh, and one of the parts, one of the parts of the world that James Baldwin explored in his writing, which people don't talk about very much, is the Middle East. Um, he, you know, he was in France when the Algerian War broke out against mm. the French in 1952. And if you follow his writing over 20 years' time. He developed great sympathy for the Algerian struggle against French colonialism. And that's because he understood he was he was living through the Vietnam War mm-hmm. and he was watching his own country try to conquer a small country in Southeast Asia. And he actually makes these connections in his writing. He mm-hmm. starts to say, kind of like Du Bois, he said, well, if my country may have blood on its hands, too. Uh, but he partly comes to that recognition by thinking about people in other parts of the world, like the Algerians, who have been right. themselves the victims of of, of history. And uh, one of the directions that this takes him in his writing is a great sympathy with the Palestinian people. Mm. Uh, he understood he didn't really in, in the 1948 when Israel was created, like many people in America. He didn't have a lot of information about the impact of the creation of Israel on the Palestinians. And, mm-hmm. of course, Israel was created on land that was occupied and had been lived on for many years by Arab people who are Palestinian. Right. Uh, over time, as he was thinking about the war in Vietnam, and he was thinking about the Algerian fight for their own independence, he became sympathetic with the Palestinian struggle for independence and their desire to have a country of their own. I mean, Palestinians to this day don't have a state and don't have mm. a country. And he, he was an interesting man because uh, Baldwin also often talked about, used metaphors of place in his writing. Uh, he's got a book called Another Country. Mm. And he's got, he's got a, a, an essay called, about Harlem called Letter from a Region of My Mind. Uh, and he was always thinking about 
people in place and how how is your identity shaped by where you live mm -hmm. and in the Palestinian situation he came to understand that their own lack of a country was something that he was sympathetic to because he understood that black people who had been uprooted from their own homeland mm -hmm. had to struggle as a result of it and I find that connection between the black diaspora and Palestinian yeah, the, the, the absence of a Palestinian home, a kind of powerful connection in his writing and something that people haven't explored too much. Mm. So I'm I'm kind of pushing I'm pushing myself in to, to sort of think more about this. Uh, he wasn't he wasn't the first African-American writer to to sympathize with the Palestinians. There have been many others like, mm -hmm. I mean, the Black Panther Party would be one sure. example. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. But. Uh, at the moment, uh, I'm, I'm trying to. I'd, I'd like to uh, encourage readers when they're thinking about uh, world events these days. Okay. Thinking about what we hear about the Israel-Palestine conflict, to remember that in the Black literary tradition, people like James Baldwin have a lot mm -hmm. to tell us about that about that uh, set of events. So it may turn out that I'm going to write something much longer about that. Okay. Uh, right now, I'm right now I'm uh, I'm exploring exploring the idea and trying to teach myself more. That kind mm -hmm. of relates to my my own sense. You know, part of my my academic work is also done here on my own campus, supporting Palestinian students. I'm a okay. faculty advisor to Students for Justice in Palestine, which is an important civil rights group. Um, so, in some ways, like Du Bois, I'm trying to put together my my research and my real life. <laughs> and that's a, that's a, that's something that, that he inspires me to do. Um, as, as, as James Baldwin does, because, uh, Absolutely. one hand he could write a great book and then next thing you know, he'd be marching in Selma. And that, that relationship between theory and practice is a, is a great inspiration in the black literary tradition. And so in some ways, uh, I think I'm trying to pay tribute to it in my own life, in my own work. Well, I think they definitely would be very proud of um, uh, the way that you represent them academically as well as your work with students. So, you know, I'm very impressed by what you've said, and, and I'm looking forward. I'm, I'm hoping that you do write that Baldwin book because I want to so get you right, right back <laughs> here on New Books Network so we can continue our conversation, you know, about that. So that's that's great. And, you know, again, we're here with Bill V. Mullen. He's a professor at Purdue University. He's in the American Studies Department there, or he's an American Studies professor. And the book is W.E.B. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line. And, you know, we're kind of getting here to the, to the end of our time because we've got to let Dr. Mullen go and, and do what he does as a professor, advising those students, teaching those classes and, and, and such. But, Dr. Mullen, are there any last thoughts or comments that you want to have for the listening audience here? Yeah, I will say I'm a political person, probably like everybody else out there. Of course. And I think people need to keep the faith about uh, uh, keep their faith in fighting for justice in this period. I think a lot of people have been a little demoralized by the election results, um, and I, I think that we need to draw on our 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 uh, people who have come before us who have Absolutely. faced hard times. And again, I think of Du Bois. You know, who actually last day on earth is the day of the March on Washington mm. in, in D.C., 95 years of life. But that was the passing of the baton for, for in a way, too, you know, to a new generation. 
And I think we have a new generation of people out there, young people especially. And Absolutely. In, you know, who have a real strong commitment to social justice, and I expect them to, to lead the way for us going forward. Well, all, all of us with, who, who get in the gray hairs there, right? That's have right. To, right. <laughs> too, many, too many of those to count. We have to leave. We have to leave uh, something for the pat, for the future generation, but they need to draw inspiration from the past. Exactly. And I think a book like yours, W. E. B. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line, is a great place for any person to start who wants to know that history and look for inform- inspiration from the past for things that are going on today. So I absolutely applaud you for your work there, Dr. Mullen. Thank you so much. Thank you, James. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Absolutely, and. This will not be our last conversation. I can guarantee you that. And I want to uh, get you back when you do some more work, you know, or maybe, you know, write something, you know, a little longer form on Baldwin. And I definitely got to get out to Purdue now and check you out. I, I won't Absolutely. worry about my, my Tar Heel gear when I get out there. Please, yeah, you'd be, you'd be <laughs> warmly welcome here in Boilermaker land. All right. That, that sounds good. And on that note, we're going to close here on the New Books Network, the African-American Studies channel. I'm your host, James Stansel. And again, you know, thank you so much, Bill V. Mullen, a professor of, of American studies at Purdue University. His book, W.E.B. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line. Highly recommended book. You do not have to be any type of scholar. This book is open to everyone. So I highly recommend it. And I will see you next time on the New Books Network. Take care and God bless. All right, we're back. And this is, again, Jane Stansel with the African-American Studies Channel, New Books Network. I really hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Bill V. Mullen of Purdue University, a professor of American studies. His book, W.E.B. Du Bois, Revolutionary Across the Color Line. And so there are several different Du Bois books out there, but this is one I think that the average person can read and enjoy. You heard me mention that several times during the podcast. So don't be afraid of this book. It's about 160 pages. You know, the writing is such that it's, you know, open and available for the average person. Dr. Mullen has several other books on the boys if you're interested, but he really wanted to emphasize to me. And we talked about this a little, just a little bit offline that this was a book that he really thought that the average person could read and it would be accessible for. So definitely take him up on that. It's a great book. He's got some great pictures in there from the time period. And I think you're going to enjoy. So on that note, I'll see you next time. Take care of yourself. And check us out next time on the New Books Network, the African-American Studies Channel. I'm your host, James Stenson.